0: Thank you, William, and good evening, and it's good to see you all this evening. I'm going to read from a couple of passages, including one from Mark's gospel before we open up Second Peter. And so if I could ask you, if you have your Bible, now, could you turn to Mark chapter 9, and we'll read the first 9 or 10 verses. Mark chapter 9, this is a very famous event in the Gospels known as the Transfiguration. And you'll see the reason for me reading it in a moment whenever we return to 2 Peter. And he said to them, that is the Lord Jesus said to them, I surely I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John and led them up to a high mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, which no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to him with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he, that is the Lord Jesus, commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising of the dead meant. And then over to Second Peter, which is a book we're considering over the next number of weeks. We're looking at a series of five nights. And there's a couple of verses from Second Peter, chapter 1 and verse 15. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease or my exodus or my departure. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were at my witnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word made more sure which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy or scripture is by any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And then just over the page to chapter 3, and just for reference sake, just verses 15 and 16. Breaking into a sentence, account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved Paul, brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in, these, in them of these things, in which our some of things are hard to understand, which those who are untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they also do the rest of Scripture. I was sitting in Tokyo Airport on board a BA flight coming back to Northern Ireland. I'd been in Japan for four or five days and I had a very busy schedule. I was tired and I was absolutely delighted because I was given a seat right opposite the emergency exit. Legroom, And so I settled down in my seat and thought, I'll just get a quick dose here. And I noticed that the young fellow, a Western fellow, sitting beside me was extremely agitated. So I watched for a while, he was sweating, he was moving. I said, are you all right? He says, I, I think so. I said, what's wrong with you? He said, I had a terrible flight out here. I said, what did you mean? And then he named an airline that he had flown on, which had a reputation for being very, very cheap. I said, what happened? And he said, I sat down in my seat in Heathrow and when I got on it, the whole seat started moving on the floor, that was the first thing. And I said, right. And then I went to put on the seatbelt and it wouldn't work. And I said to the stewardess and she said, oh, don't worry about that. And then, we were flat at about 30,000 feet, and he says, the plane started to make very strange noises and vibrate a bit, and everybody was a bit concerned. But he says, as we approached Japan, he said, I was sitting there in my seat, just hoping and praying that we'd get down, whenever water started to flow out of the ceiling on top of my head. So I immediately buzzed for the stewardess, and she came up, and she said, ach, not again. She says, here, hold that bucket under you land, will you please? He says, I'm never flying with that airline again. I don't trust it. He says, this flight's cost me far more than anything else I could afford to play, but I don't trust that airline. I, I'm not flying it again. I wonder what on earth that connection is with First Peter. I don't trust it. Sometimes we talk about blind faith. Sometimes we're told as Christians that we have blind faith. That we're just stepping out into the unknown and just trusting that it's all right. If that's the case, we're in a very, very sorry state. Because faith is based solely on the object that we can trust. He couldn't trust that airline, so he couldn't fly it. Let me give you another example. Let's imagine you're going to change a light bulb, and you say to me, "You've got a chair," and I go out and I bring in the chair to you, and you look at it, and one of the legs is hanging off, and the back is all rocky and the seat—well, uh, you wouldn't definitely even sit on it. You say, "I hey, can stand that." So I'm not putting my weight in that chair. I don't trust it. I don't have any faith in it because when I look at it, it doesn't meet my expectations. And that's exactly the problem that these people, these Christians in Peter's second epistle were facing. They were starting to get people who were coming in and they were starting to undermine their faith. And Peter calls them false teachers. And he says, look, I'm going to show you, I'm going to demonstrate to you that you can trust what we said to you. You can depend upon it as being true. Last week we looked at the fact that he said these false teachers, when they come along, their lies will not reflect the teachings of Christ. As a matter of fact, and I won't say too much because I don't want to move into chapter 2, but chapter 2 talks in great detail about the lifestyle of these men. These teachers, immoral, mercenary, out for their own good. And the vagueness that Peter uses, I could go on and list. He says, that's not characteristic of people who have heard the gospel. You heard the gospel. You heard exactly the same gospel that I believed. You have everything that you need and possess to live that life. And therefore develop the character of And see how the gospel has changed your life. Remember I said Simon Peter. He said I was Simon and now I'm Peter. I look back and I look now and I see how God has transformed and changed my life. That he says is the first evidence. The first evidence that the gospel message is true. Changed lives and I know we as Christians today you may look upon us and you can point the finger of accusation at us and rightfully too at times because we don't live up at times to the message although we endeavor to do so it is a changed life as a result of faith in Jesus Christ which brings us to the point that we are today but then Peter moves on he says now I'm going to die that's verse 15 And that's the last time he uses the pronoun I. And it's significant in the next half a dozen verses that the pronoun changes to we. Very significant. Because he moves from talking personally to talking about the other apostles, the other teachers. And he says, we didn't bring you false labels, false teaching, false material." You know, what he's basically saying is, we weren't charlatans. At that time, there were men who claimed to have the ability to make a medical diagnosis and to heal you. But all that they were in it for was their own good. And that's exactly the same phrase that's used here, false. People who came along for their own purposes and communicated something which was false, made money off you, walked away, and left you in exactly the same place where you... I'm sorry to say this, but it needs to be said. There are charlatans in the church today. There are charlatans in the church today whose primary objective is not to communicate the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in its totality, but simply to communicate a message which benefits them and sometimes benefits them financially. We, he said, were not charlatans. We didn't come along with, with a false message. These false prophets, they're coming along and he says so in chapter 2, he says, we they're going to come along and they're going to communicate to you a false message. But we didn't do that. And then he goes on to say that we were eyewitnesses of the glory of Jesus Christ. He says, "Here's the first proof, if you need it. We saw it. What do you mean, Peter? What, what did you see? Well, you see, here's the situation. And let me paint the picture as I see Second Peter. Here's the situation. The Lord Jesus Christ said then, and we read it in Mark, that some of you would not see death unto you, saw the Lord revealed in his glory. And then he said, we went on up into a mountain, me, James, and John, and while we were there, the Lord Jesus Christ was transfigured in all his glory you know the miracle wasn't the transfiguration the miracle was that the Lord Jesus Christ had lived amongst us and we were not seeing that glory the, that he was veiled in flesh because for a moment that veil was broken away and we saw him or Peter says we saw him in all his glory We saw Jesus Christ. And he described him there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter was so astonished to see Elijah and Moses with him, he opened his mouth without thinking. He basically says that. And he says, we heard a voice from heaven. We were eyewitnesses. What did you see, Peter? We saw Jesus transfigured. We heard God say, this is my beloved son. We heard it. He said, we were eyewitnesses and saw the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. And you say, that's remarkable, Peter. That must have had some impact upon you. That must have been some experience that you had. He says, it was. But he says, believe it or not, it's superseded by something else. That's what he says in there. He says, we have the prophets. In other words, yes, I had this incredible experience of the transfiguration. James and John and I witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. But that, well, if you want to use a phrase, fades into insignificance when we look at what we have in our possession. We have the Word of God. You know what he's saying? He's saying that that Word of God, which is in your possession, which you have in your hand, which you and I can read in our own language today, of which probably in our own homes we have multiple copies, that Word of God that sometimes we dust off the cover and open it up, that Word of God, he says, that supersedes my personal experience. That's amazing. What you and I have supersedes Peter's experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Can I just draw a point to you? Today, we're called upon to have experience. All sorts of experiences visions, dreams, extraordinary things, people telling you things, all sorts of signs and wonders that are all over the place. You only have to watch the channels and TV or on the social media. And they're not based on the Word of God. They're based on personal, emotional hype and experience. They're based on people coming in from the outside. Peter says, that's all insignificant. He said, The word of God. That's what the phrase he uses to describe the prophets, the scriptures, the word of God. And he uses three phrases in there, three little words, which take us back to Peter, the fisherman. And if you look at them, you can see them there. Just let me read them over to you again. We have the prophetic word made more sure or even more sure than what I have experienced. And you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Three little phrases that take us back to Peter, the fisherman. The first one, you took me well to heed it. In other words, he's saying, don't ignore it. He said, what's a fisherman? Whenever the man went out fishing, and they fished at night. If you look in the New Testament, you'll see that even recorded. Whenever they came in, having fished all night, they caught nothing. They focused their attentions on a light on the shore to orientate themselves, to know where they were. And that's exactly the phrase that Peter is using here. He says, we focused our attention on that light. We heeded the word of God. We focus on the word of God. We as a church believe in the word of God. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we teach, we base it as we understand the Word of God. Peter says, focus on it. Don't allow that light to go out. Don't allow yourself to be distracted. Don't read the book about so-and-so who had such an experience. Don't read this or watch that. He says, get the Word of God in your hands. Follow it. Engage with it. He says, that is what is going to help you like a light in a dark place. It's not just darkness that he's talking about here. My wife will be listening to this on Zoom tonight and she's going to kill me when I get home, but I'm going to say it anyway. Have you ever moved a piece of furniture that's never been moved before? Maybe you have had something in your hand and it's rolled in underneath the fridge. Let's take the fridge as an example. It's not something you lift out every day of the week. And it's rolled in underneath the fridge and you need to get it out. And so you lift out the fridge and you shine a torch in and there's dirt that thick on the floor. I told you I was in trouble. There's dirt that thick on the floor. That's the phrase that Peter uses for the darkness. It's murkiness. It's darkness. It's not just blackness. It's lost in there. It's lost in dust and dirt. And he says, if you depend and focus on the Word of God, he says, it's a light in that dark, murky place. You want to live a Christian life? You want to develop Christian character, as we looked at last week. You want to become more Christ-like. It's not through experience, although it does contribute. It's through hard graft, getting into the Word of God and allowing it to change you. It's a light. Psalm 119 describes as being a light onto your path, a lamp. And here we have exactly the same imagery, Only Peter says it's there in the darkness. So the first one is a fisherman looking at the light. The second one is, he says, you you don't have a right to tease it out and make your own decisions. He says it's not open to us to just decide what we want. And the phrase that he uses there is if you like untangling a very complex net knot or a knot that would be in a rope. You know, taking it out and untangling it. He says, we don't have the right to take God's prophetic scripture and we don't have the right to untangle it and just do what we want with it. We have got to be consistent with what the Word of God teaches, whether it's through Peter, whether it's through Paul, whether it's through the prophets, whether it's through the Gospels, we have got to work with it consistently. Some go as far as saying that we do not have the right to explain Scripture, that it's left up to ordained clergy or priests. That's not what is meant here. It's meant that we don't have the right to Just do what we want with it. We've got to be consistent. All too often we take a phrase out of context. All too often we take a word and build a sermon around it. We need to look at it in its context. And then he goes on to say, but all Scripture, and here's the third word, has been given to us by God. And he uses an expression there of a boat or a ship or a sailing boat. And a wind catching the sail. And he would be so familiar with this in the Sea of Galilee. A wind coming down off the hills and catching the sail. And taking that boat across. And that boat is driven by the word of God. That boat or that boat is driven by the wind. And in the same way, the writers of the scriptures... The writers of the scriptures who came together to form what we know today as the Bible, while their own personality and at times even their own vocabulary or way may have come in into how to express things, they were driven by the Word of God. They were driven by the Spirit of God to write the Word of God. So what does that mean? That what you have in your possession here right now is God-breathed. God gave you that. We believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. We believe that God took man and God guided man and God communicated to man that what God wanted man to know and that everything, and I mean everything we need, is inside those pages. We can't add to it and we should never detract from it. And so people say, and we're not going over what we did a number of weeks ago, is the Bible reliable and true? We believe it is. We believe that God spoke. And if you want to know who God is, and if you want to know what the Christian message is, and if you want to know the impact that it will have upon you, it's written there in that book. And Peter goes on to say, but he says, You've got to trust Paul as well. His epistles. Peter's at the end of his life. Paul's writings are coming to the fore. And he says, Paul is talking about something which is very complex. What is he talking about? Now, many scholars debate this. But let's take it logically, sequentially through what is happening And what is the problem that Peter is addressing? The false teachers were going to come. The false teachers' lifestyle would not reflect the gospel of Christ. The false teachers would come a heresy. And the false teachers would bring false information. And chapter 3 tells us exactly what that false information is. And they say this. That Jesus Christ will never and cannot come back again. We believe that Jesus Christ will return soon. Did you hear that? We believe that Jesus Christ will bodily, physically return soon. And Peter is saying, I prove to you that I saw the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory and all his majesty. I saw it at the transfiguration. He says, you would do well to heed the prophets, the prophets of old and the prophets who said that he is coming. Don't go around making up your own opinions and all the rest because God has spoken and Paul has come along and Paul has told you even more complex things. And here's what he's saying. Jesus Christ is coming back again. You say, I've never heard that before. That must be some fringe idea that belongs to this church. That's strange. I was speaking here one night on that very topic of the return of Jesus Christ. And I preached my heart out and I was at the door shaking hands. And this man came from, I think it was France. He could have been Italian. I don't know. But he came up to me and he shook my hands. He said, you're mad. I said, thank you. I said, what do you mean? He said, what you said is crazy. That Jesus Christ who died on a cross, Jesus Christ who rose again, Jesus Christ who ascended into heaven is the same Jesus Christ who will return again. Yes. Why do you not preach it? Why do we not preach it today? Why have we got the church gone silent on the return of Jesus Christ? I'll tell you why. There's two reasons. And we're at fault. You know, one of the things I love to watch on TV whenever it happens is a building being demolished. I don't know if you've ever watched it, I find it absolutely fascinating. These men go in and they put in pieces of dynamite and all the rest and various explosives around the whole outside of this building. And then everybody draws back and they press a button that goes crunch and falls in. And I believe that the teaching of Jesus Christ and his return today has been actually attacked, deliberately attacked, so that we don't preach it. Because when we get to chapter 3, we're told to live in the light of it. And I'm not going to go there because that's another sermon. But wh- what do I mean? We do one of two things whenever we preach about the return of Christ. Number one, you all listen to see what his opinion is. Is he a pre-tribulationist or post-tribulationist? Is he an amillennialist or a whatever, premillennialist? I know Gareth had a dig at me this morning and I could have a dig at him tonight, but... He's wrong. But um, the point is, we have reduced it down to interesting debates and arguments. I can tell you now that every time, and it'll probably happen tonight, every time I have spoken on the second coming of Jesus Christ and let out the truth of His coming, somebody comes along and says to me, I don't agree with you. I said, I don't care. The fact of the matter is... That Jesus Christ is coming back again, and we can create our timelines, which I believe are helpful and necessary. We can create our timelines, but when we get focused on where does everything fit, we miss the message. Live in the light of His coming. What's the other reason? All too often, people have made the most outrageous comments about Prophetic prophecy and return of Jesus Christ. They have looked at the, what is happening around about them. They have even gone to predict dates. And even gone to predict people as being the Antichrist. Do you know that Ronald Reagan was de- depicted as the Antichrist by one group? Because he's Ronald. I can't remember his middle name, Reagan. But all three words, all three names have the letter six in it. So he was 666. Outrageous material. Outrageous material. And yet, what happens is that latches, people latch on to that, and then they say, but it wasn't true, so therefore what you're saying must not be true. The reality is, we do not know when Christ will return again. The reality is that Christ says, there are signs of my coming again. He lends them out in Matthew for us. He says, these are birth pangs. These are the signs to look for. And by, my goodness, we have the birth pangs. We can see it happening, but we don't have the right to say this and that and this is the fulfillment of prophecy. We reduce the message. Jesus Christ is coming back again. The false prophets came along and they said, the false teachers came along, and they said, "You're wrong. You said Jesus said. You would see me in all my glory and you'd be alive. Peter, you're one of the last ones alive. He hasn't come back yet. Peter says, wait a minute. I saw him in the transfiguration. I fulfilled that. And he says, we'll live in the light of his coming again. And then he goes back and with this I finish. He says this, The light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. What's the morning star? The Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter twenty-two refers to Himself as the morning star. There are three elements within the, the sky there would be the brightest, there's obviously the sun and there's the moon and there's the morning star many believe it to be Venus as it arises in the mornings a bright, bright light and I want you to imagine these fishermen going back to Peter again, out there fishing all night and as he looks, he sees the morning star arise on the horizon we can go home the night's work is over the dawn is coming. The morning star is arising, and the sun, in all its glory, will follow. And that's the command given to us as Christians. Not to get bogged down on the ifs, the buts and the maybes. Is this a prophetic fulfillment or that, or whatever? Yes, interesting conversations. Don't get me wrong, I engage in them myself. But that's not the focus. The focus is this. The reality that he is coming back again. When the Lord Jesus Christ was born as an infant in Bethlehem, he was the fulfillment of many prophecies. He came as the saviour of the world. Peter is saying he's coming back again. And he'll be the fulfillment of many prophecies. But this time he's not coming as the saviour of the world. This time Jesus Christ is coming as the judge of the world. My friend, I believe that Jesus Christ could come back at any time. Any time. The Frenchman at the door told me I was mad. The Bible teaches it. We believe it. We look up. We see the morning star. We, we know that he's coming back soon. He's coming. And the question for you is this. Jesus Christ was to return tonight not as Savior but as judge. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? My favorite story in the New Testament and you'll have heard me say it a number of times is the story of Simeon the old man in the temple when Jesus was brought as a baby. There in the arms of Mary, a child. And those words of Simeon resonate in my, my mind, my ears all the time. Lord, let your depart, servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. Let your servant part in peace. It's a picture of a man who's going on guard duty. And he stood there all night and when the sun rises, he's allowed to go home. His period of duty is over. And Simeon says, I spent my life looking at the horizon, waiting and watching and he has come. He has arrived. The sun has risen. And I live my life firmly believing that I will not die. But that I will rise to meet the Lord in the air. And as I look at a world around about me, I believe that it's soon and very soon we are going to see the king. And I endeavor to live my life whatever may be left, to serve him, to fulfill his requirements, and to live for him. Peter says, you're in trouble. There's false teachers coming. But the gospel's transformed you. He says, I can prove to you that I saw the glorious Glory of the incarnate Christ. I saw it. Don't hide from it. He's coming again. The word of God right throughout the whole of Scripture. Driven by God. Tells us everything we need to know. Depend on it. And look up. Watch up. out. For the morning star. My friend. Do you believe it? Or do you reject it? If you believe it, live it. And if you're going to live it, live it not through experiences and all the nuances. Live it in the light of the living, God-breathed Word of God. And prepare yourself like Simeon of old, looking at the horizon for a bright morning to come. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this promise that we have that Jesus Christ will return again. Help us, our Father, to live in the light of it. We thank you, our Father, for your Word, your God-breathed Word, which speaks into our lives, transforming our lives, giving us all we need to know about you, in person through Christ. Help us, our Father, to live in the light of your Son's return. Father, if there's somebody who is hearing this message for the first time, to whom this is all very strange, Father, we pray that you might speak into their life. They may realize the reality of the hope that exists. That we as Christians, because of our faith, can look up for the morning star. And as Christians of old greeted one another, Maranatha, come. Lord Jesus, come. Amen.